we have um, a real distinguished panel, and uh, I'll just do some brief introductions, uh, if that's okay. First of all, uh, Roger Mosey, and uh, he's um, read modern languages and uh, at Wadden in the late 70s. But actually his real play to fame during that time was uh, being on University Challenge in 1978 for the college. So, uh, Lowest scoring ever. Was it, really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, he's now got one of the biggest jobs in broadcasting. He's the BBC's Lon uh, Director of uh, London 2012 coverage. And he's coordinating not just the sports side, but also the BBC's activities surrounding um, the London Olympics, including the Cultural Olympiad, and getting um, the whole of the UK involved in the summer events. Um, Extremely impressive track record, having edited the Today Show on Radio 4, became controller of BBC Radio 5 Live, was head of BBC Television News, uh, he was um, most recently the director of BBC Sport, where he oversaw the BBC's coverage of the 2006 World Cup and Beijing Olympics and the return of Formula One to the BBC as well. Um, it says here for his sins he's also an Arsenal supporter, so I don't know what we're doing with Ed Warner next to him, uh, gosh, this is a bit multimedia, isn't it? Um, he's chairman of UK Athletics, and uh, he's also been a highly successful businessman, uh, often popping up on TV and radio, commenting on financial matters and banking. Uh, he also lectures on investment banking at the um, Institute of uh, Cranfield. Uh, and he was former CEO of Old Mutual and uh, a number of other companies, but uh, uh, real passion is uh, running, and um, I, I'm just trying to remember the name of the club now. It's the Fittleworth, Fittleworth Flyers. Flyers, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So, uh, um, real combination. Being able to combine uh, a love of running with, a, with clearly a, a very uh, uh, major role in ensuring the future of UK athletics. Um, next to him is uh, Charlie Wijeratna, and uh, went to Worcester College. Um, in fact, there is quite a Worcester theme to things. We do our best. Uh, yeah. <laughs> So, um, but uh, Charlie became a lawyer, then retrained as a banker working on corporate finance team of uh, Dresner, Kleinwald, Benson. Uh, and this mixture of law and banking turned out to be the perfect background for what he went on to do. He was first, uh, the first um, and highly influential director of the Olympic bid process from its very start in 2003, and then went on to be director of commercial negotiations for LOCOG. Um, until uh, 2010. Um, he particularly specialised in securing the massive sponsorships and partnerships that we uh, now uh, have become so familiar with as part of the Olympics. And now he's the executive director at Tottenham Hotspur Football Club where his commercial skills are also at uh, a premium. And uh, I think you've come back from the match last night in Greece? Greece, yes, that's yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, thank you for making the An exciting nil-nil draw. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and next to him is Alison Walsh. If I do this, somebody would probably press this button on it. It might, might help. Uh, or we'll grow an extra arm. That might be the way of doing it. Um, so uh, Alison Walsh was at Somerville and a talented row and all-round sportswoman, but she developed arthritis when she was in her first year at Oxford. Um, her health problems certainly didn't keep her out of sport, however, and her gifts as an administration and organiser uh, were recognised when she was elected president of uh, a U Women's Boat Club. She went on to a distinguished career as an award-winning writer and broadcaster, specialising in disability and travel, working with the BBC Holiday Series and Rough Guides. She's now Disability Director of Channel 4, which won the rights to broadcast the Paralympics. Um, so she has a huge job uh, underway at the moment. Um, and uh, I think a uh, swimmer, in, uh, when, when you get the chance, in between a heavy workload. Yes, I'll um, try. I'm looking for it. Thank you. Um, next to her, Paul Williamson uh, went to Trinity College and is actually Director of Ticketing at London 2012. Um, and so, uh, you know, uh, certainly a role that's been uh, in pro high profile in recent months. Um, really? <laughs> um, Paul's got an incredible track record actually in the ticketing business and uh, former director of Ticketmaster and uh, owner of Synchro Systems and so he specialised in many major events such as the Olympic Games, World Cups and, and Ryder Cups. Um, yeah, I think we'll leave that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> But um, I, I know from uh, my past at the LTA that one of his great passions in life is playing tennis as well, so uh, um, be prepared for a tough contest if you get him out on court. 
Um, and finally, at the end, uh, Godric Smith, who's actually uh, another alumnus of Worcester College. Uh, he's Director of Communications for the Olympic Delivery Authority, and he's former official spokesman for the Prime Minister in the Blair government, um, and where he was widely respected, even as the, uh, amongst the uh, normally cynical and hard-bitten journalists, as somebody that was uh, um, somebody great to deal with. Um, and uh, so really, in, in terms of uh, overall uh, panel here, we've got uh, the man responsible for the stadium and infrastructure, we have the man who's raised the money, we have the man who is uh, putting bums on seats, another is helping to produce the athletes and of course a hat full of medals, uh, as well as um, two people who will bring all of the action to our living room and iPhones. So I think um, in terms of questioning, I'd actually just like to turn to Charlie in the middle here because um, legend has it that you actually put the lights on in the very first office of the bid way, way back. So if you don't mind just taking us through some of the early stages and some of the Oxonians on the way. Yeah, no, that'd be a pleasure. <clears throat> um, I was very, very fortunate in that I was presented with a blank piece of paper in, in 2003. Um, I knew Barbara Cassani who was the first chairman of the bid before Seb um, took over in 2004. And I volunteered to help Barbara start the bid um, because I read an article in the Evening Standard that said she was going to start the bid. And I reading between the lines, I realized she didn't have a, any staff or any offices or anything. So I, was, I, I just phoned her up and said, this is what I want to do. This is, what, this is how I want to help. I believe passionately in power of sport to change people's lives. And I think London could put on this event better than anyone has ever done it. And I genuinely believe that. Um, but I remember sitting in her kitchen. There was no offices. There was no money. There was no bank account. There was nothing. I remember sitting in her kitchen um, looking at her. And we looked at each other across the table. And we were both thinking, how do you do an Olympic bid? You know, <laughs> what, what, what is an Olympic bid? So we kind of worked it out. Um, I, and I, was, I was very lucky. I, ca I called on a whole series of favours from friends, um, several from Oxford, actually. Uh, Oxford people were very important in starting the bid and getting the bid up and running. For example, Tim Jones, uh, Rugby Blue from the late 70s, uh, was, a managing, was a managing partner of Freshfields in London, and he offered legal support. Um, I found another friend who ran a furniture company, um, and they provided the desks and the chairs. Literally, we didn't have a bank account. Um, so that's how we got the thing running. And I, and I picked some of the very best people I knew who I thought I could persuade to come and join the bid, and several of whom were old um, were alum, Oxford alumni, people like Alistair Ruxton and Holly Jamison. And there, was a, um, there was a very, very high-quality team of young people who were very committed to the project. And we approached it with real kind of business professional vigor that we were going to we were going to put on the bid and make the bid as good as we possibly could. Um, and we were going to leave no stone unturned. And we were going to behave as if we were going to win. So we prepared everything as if we were going to win. So we put the joint venture in place to set up LOCOG. We wrote the Act of Parliament that was passed um, six months after we won the bid to create the Olympic Delivery Authority. We, you know, we had a blank piece of paper. We designed the structures for how we were going to stage the games. You know, we created the, the powers of the Olympic Delivery Authority. Um, we managed to create a joint venture that enabled Paul, enables Paul Dighton today to run LOCOG in a, w without too much um, government interference because of the way the board is structured in that um, um, the executives and the, and the chairman's um, picks on the board outnumber uh, the mayors and the government. So uh, this was really, really, really important because otherwise uh, I don't think LOCOG would have been so successful in, in behaving in, uh, like a private sector organisation and, and raising the £2.1 billion that it's had to raise through the sponsorship money. So it was an amazing, amazing journey. Uh, it was a real privilege. And there was Oxford people right at the very heart of it. And um, I think it's fair to say that um, without the alumni of this university, we wouldn't have won the bid. So there we have it. Um, Roger, how long have you been planning for these particular games and what, what um, can we expect to, to see from the BBC in terms of uh, 
its approach to the games? Well, the, the BBC was involved right from the start as well and mm. we gave a lot of advice on the way the broadcasting could be shaped and, and it's something therefore we've been with the journey all, all the way. Um, I mean, I think the extraordinary thing now is just thinking about what next year looks like and if you think about the Royal Wedding this year as being just one day, it was an amazing day obviously, the Diamond Jubilee next year is three days like that. You've then got 70 days of the Torch Relay. Uh, you've got 80 days of the biggest ever cultural festival in London 2012 festival. You then got 17 days of the, para of the Olympics and the Paralympics. So actually you have this enormous challenge facing the country. And I think really uh, up until Beijing, we were very focused on Beijing as being the biggest thing we'd ever have done and you know, a huge OB in a potentially difficult territory. Um, and I think our, our planning really moved up a notch after that. And the scale of it, when you look at the culture and news and the sport, is enormous. And it's, it's a kind of wonderful challenge because you really get a sense that I think what we can do in this digital age is both still bring people together and we'd like to be the place where people come together to share all those experiences. But also, in a digital world, you can give people you know, their own individual millions of different experiences. So it's going to be, it's going to be exciting. Um, Alison, you're um, similarly in uh, the same sphere as Roger. Um, did you ever expect to be this closely involved with the, the Olympics and sports um, in your career? And um, no, certainly not. I mean, when I uh, got arthritis and dropped out of sport or competitive sport, um, I, you know, the, the idea that in you know several years' time I might be involved in the biggest disability sporting event um, in the world was. Uh, you know, I just never considered it. And I think it would have certainly helped me in my sort of rehabilitation uh, after suddenly losing sport out of my life, if I'd known that, really, because it's been fantastic to see how um, energised the whole channel uh, has become since we won the bit in terms of uh, taking interest in disability. Because disability is not a sexy subject. and. It's been quite a slog on <coughs> many people in the industry and, and in other parts of life to, to get it more into the mainstream, really. And now the Paralympics is sort of going to take it to an, another, a new level completely, I think. And, it, and it's got the capacity to change attitudes to disability and perceptions of disability um, completely. Uh, and I think people at the channel and uh, anyone involved in the bid and is, you know, recognise that and um, has become really engaged in it. So yeah. it's really exciting. Absolutely. Um, one very sexy subject that's obviously dominated uh, many of the recent months has been uh, the rush for tickets. And so I want to ask Paul Williamson what it's like to be the most loved and hated man in Britain. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but actually, on a more serious note, to take us <coughs> to um, what it is like to preside over, you know, such a, a business or an operation of that scale that has to be mounted in a relatively short space of time, and then, and then, I guess the challenge in a few months' time is shutting the whole thing down as well. So, um. in, indeed, thank you. I'm mean, just just on the scale. Um, you know, I think people people overlook it, but you know, we were trying to make ticketing process simple. Well, your starting point, if you want simplicity, isn't uh, a sports event with 650 different sessions across 17 days in 26 sports at 35 venues. Uh, it's something you couldn't invent today. I mean, it's far too complicated. Um, and our job was to try and make that, make, make that accessible and affordable to people um, through ticketing. Um, and it's part of you know, what, what followed on from what Charlie started. And, uh, and certainly uh, uh, his old boss, my current boss, Paul Dighton, says um, we're running the, the world's biggest logistics project. The only thing bigger than the Olympic Games on the whole planet is going to war. Um, and you know, th there's nothing as complicated as an Olympic Games. Um, and, and our ticketing process really had to start with that. Um, and so we spent a lot of time building up databases, getting people involved in it, uh, trying to get people to plan their games. And then we opened for business for six weeks. and. Uh, we got a huge rush, particularly at the end, um, to have an event where 22 million tickets are applied for. It's certainly it's never been done before in the world, um, <coughs> from 1.8 million people. Um, and I know lots of people were disappointed uh, in not getting the tickets they wanted, not getting any tickets at all. Um, but some of the stats just show, you know, 2 million tickets were applied for for the opening ceremony. 
a million tickets for the 100 metres final. Um, no one can build a stadium that big. Uh, and if they did, you couldn't get everyone into it in time. Um, so, we, you know, we, we've had tremendous pressures on, on, the, uh, on the whole business. But um, I think the only thing worse than selling out of all the tickets would be not selling out of all the tickets in, in media terms. Um, so, uh, you know, going into 2012, we're in a great place. Um, and right now, you can apply for Paralympic tickets um, for the next couple of weeks. Uh, Paralympic tickets are actually going, going really well. We're going to sell hundreds of thousands of them. Um, a year before the Games, and, and no other country, no other nation has ever bought a Paralympic ticket with a year to go. And I think it shows the, the passion and the interest in London 2012 as a whole, be it Olympic or Paralympic, from the British public. Uh, and I think that uh, when we see the Paralympic Games following on from the Olympics next year, they're going to be a fantastic spectacle as well. Thanks, Previous career, I used to work at the Lawn Tennis Association and had a very modest access to uh, some Wimbledon tickets. But uh, um, every May, I used to get an inordinate amount of phone calls from people who uh, eventually got round to the subject of why they wanted to call me, which was, uh, <laughs> had I got any Wimbledon tickets? So I can't imagine what Paul's going through. <laughs> um, Godric, um, <coughs> so you, 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 you know, very noted for. Um, uh, political um, career in terms of um, PR communications and things. How, how have you found the Olympic world um, by comparison? Well, I think there's a lot of things that make, um, make the Olympics special. Uh, and I think one of them actually is the fact that it's a, a project that's really sort of transcended national politics. Um, and I don't think we'd be in the place that we're in today uh, were it not for the sort of cross-party consensus that there's been really right from the outset to, um, to deliver this uh, for the country. So, you know, when we started off, there was a, a Labour government and a Labour mayor, then we've had a Labour government and a Conservative mayor, we've now got a Conservative government and a Conservative mayor, or a coalition government and a, a Conservative mayor. And really the project hasn't sort of missed a beat. And I think actually the, you know, it's to, to the, the credit of, of all the political parties, really, that they've united around the vision and really wanted to make this work for the country. So. Yesterday was at the Olympic board and we've got some representatives from all the different political parties around the table wanting to sort of solve problems and make things work. And as I say, just on the construction side, um, I don't think we'd be in the position we're in today if, uh, if this had become a political football. And I think it's, it's one of those rare projects that I think does really encourage sort of good behaviours of, of people working together, you know, a common goal, a shared endeavour. And I think it's, um, yeah, it's been a great success on that front. Um, Ed, are you feeling any pressure yet about uh, delivery of medals? And yeah, massive, massive. <laughs> I think um, if I look at the people on the panel, the, the, one, um, the one opportunity they've got is to control the environment they're operating within ahead of time. And I'm sure there'll be contingency planning for all sorts of things. You have a Jubilee line going down, not being able to get people in. Um, yeah, presenter gets a cold the night before, has to be replaced, whatever. So there'll be all that sort of contingency planning. Um, the one thing they don't have is the opposition. So, and I'm clearly responsible for um, Britain's track and field chances in the main stadium. And let's face it, I'm very snobbish about this. Athletics is the marquee sport at the Olympics. It's the one, <laughs> if, we all, if we all go back and remember Olympics past, um, apart from Mark Spitz in the swimming pool, and he wasn't a Brit, all of my early Olympic memories are track and field memories, and that's what people will remember. And if you look at global athletics, there are 212 member federations of the IAAF. And so we may put Mo Farah, our latest world champion, um, or Di Green onto the track um, and think they've got a great chance, but there are potential athletes from 211 other nations in all of those events that will be out there looking to achieve the same thing as them. And I, I look back to Osaka was the first major championships I went to in the world championships um, in this role. And there was the, the, high, the men's high jump was won by someone from the Bahamas called Donald Thomas, um, who was a college basketball player in the States who hadn't high jumped 18 months before. And he was larking around in a basketball training session with some of his mates and there was a high jump set up in the corner. And one of his teammates said, I bet you can't get over that. It was set at two metres. And he went and just sort of hopped over it. And they kept putting it up to two metres 20. And I have to say, there aren't many British high jumpers today who can get over 220. And he went over it. And uh, they ran off and got the track and field coach and said, watch this. And there was a guy in his basketball shoes jumping over it. And um, 
So 18 months later, he won the world championships, um, not even wearing high jump spikes. He was wearing pole vault spikes, which, if you know your athletics, had the spikes at the wrong end of the shoe. They sort of worked for him. And um, I sat in the stadium, new to this job, bemoaning yet more sort of agonies about Britain dropping batons and relay changeovers and all the things I'd lose sleep over, um, watching someone from the Bahamas win a gold medal. And it brings it home to you that someone can come from anywhere on the planet in any of the 47 different medal events in athletics. And that's a long-winded way of saying that I, I think all of these people and everybody else working with them will put on, I have no doubt about it, an absolutely fantastic show. Whether you're watching it in the stadia, and there's only one stadium obviously to be in really, or, um, <laughs> or whether you're watching it on Channel 4 or on the BBC or listening or whatever it might be, but ultimately Britons will want to remember these games for British medal success across all the sports. Um, and so, yeah, there, of course there is some pressure because you can only control so much that. You can encourage your athletes to do the right things in the right way, um, but there's someone else out there looking to do the same, and there's many of them. And that's the, isn't that the great joy of sport? And sitting here now, I think we all know it's going to be a great games. Yeah, I hope it doesn't rain every day and all those things, but it will, it will look great, but will it be absolutely fantastic? And that will be down to, to Team GB, and that's the joy of it, is we just don't know at this point. We know one thing, it'll be great to watch, but do we know how great it will be? Of course we don't. Um, one, one little question just to ponder for slightly later on is um, the one thing that keeps you awake at night. Um, it's just touched on... Baton changes so. every time. <laughs> every time. I can't, I can't watch the 4 by one relay anymore. It's just it's a car crash moment. <laughs> the, um, uh, well, you, you touched on the stadium now. I mean, uh, just going back to you, um, what, are, what, are you, what is the latest status on that and what... You know, what are your thoughts uh, around the future of the, the stadium and the legacy of the I, I can't. I've got a man from Tottenham sitting on my bed. <laughs> the, the maverick in me was trying to... to uh, um, I, 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 can't, I can't say all that I know, obviously, but mm. um, I can assure you that plans A, B, C, D, E, F, G, however far you want to go, um, all the contingency planning, whatever happens in the legal cases, resolve themselves with a track in the stadium for at least the next six years. And the reason I say for at least the next six years is we're bidding for the World Championships, Athletics World Championships to come to London in 2017. It's a straight fight between us and Qatar. So it's the, the allure of London versus the money of, um, of the Qataris. It's going to be quite an interesting battle. That gets resolved in November. And whatever happens, um, we will be in a position to deliver that championships. Um, there's, there's reasons why I'm confident. Um, it is a bit of a pain, let's say, but that's the, 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 to look at it from a positive perspective, at least we live in an open society in which these contests can take place. Um, whereas in lots of other parts of the world, that things will be stitched up. They're not being stitched up in that way, but it has caused me a few sleepless nights. Do you want to say anything, Sean? No, I don't think I ought to. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. <laughs> Right, um, much less contentious topic, which, and I, I will come to Ed actually at the end as a sports governing body, which definitely has an eye on the, you know, um, the next generation uh, of sports people. Um, but across the panel, what, what are your expectations? Do you think that there will be a genuine legacy of the great British public getting off at its sofa and uh, really embracing sport and participation? And what, what kind of um, uh, input and, and um, perhaps strategies have we got around trying to enable that. Um, uh, I'm just thinking who we'll go to first, but um, perhaps Alison, would you um, comment on that? Um, well, uh, I mean, we're, we've done a bit of uh, work on that in the early stages um, following the winning the bid to um, engage with um, organisations involved in grassroots disability sports and uh, working a lot with Tony Gray-Thompson on that and uh, trying to work out how we can just do more than try and inspire people by what we see in 2012. I mean, one of the, one of the things that we um, committed to do in the bid was to do a lot of build-up programming. And I think um, the audience feedback we've had from uh, that Paralympic show, which is now into its third series, is um, very positive from that point of view. People, um, young people especially, and um, young people with disabilities are finding it really inspiring. We had a fantastic um, note from a, 
an 11-year-old boy who had made his own little video about the sports that he was going to take up as a result of watching um, one, of these, one of these shows. And I think, um, you know, it is, it is possible to reach uh, a big audience through the build-up pro programming rather than expect that sort of narrow window in 2012 to, to sort of do everything for you, really. Uh, I actually remember um, the BBC's um, Gold Fever series uh, did a lot to kind of increase the enthusiasm for rowing around, I think it was 2000, wasn't it? Um, I remember that, being a rower, I had to watch it, but some loads of people who weren't rowers that I knew were kind of really inspired by it, I think. Um, Paul, do you have any view on whether the... Yeah, I'm, I'm certain there'll be a tremendous legacy. Um, with, I think we'll see more people participate, more people uh, enthused, excited by sport. Um, what, what are we doing in, in, in terms of ticketing? Well, I'm, I'm driven really by data, and we've got this huge database that we want to, to push people towards sport. And you know, one sort of detail of that, um, in the summer I remember reading a, uh, an amusing letter in The Guardian which said, uh, sirs, uh, I've managed to apply for and receive uh, two tickets for Greco-Roman wrestling. Please could you tell me which side bats first? <laughs> <laughs> and one of the things we're doing across the next year is that everyone who's bought a wrestling ticket will get four emails from the wrestling governing body explaining to them the rules, uh, when the British Championships are, who the best players are, uh, why, why, the, why the Turks and the Greeks are very good at wrestling, etc. So that by the time they get to the games, they'll be better spectators. Um, and we hope then that they'll continue with that sport, maybe go to the British Championships the year after, maybe introduce their kids to the sport. And if we can do that across 26 different sports, certainly from Ed's point of view, it'll bring some, some new blood, some new vibrancy, some new spectators into athletics. Yeah, I think we've got to try very hard. And things like Sport Relief, Big Splash, do that. Uh, I mean, I think I'm right to saying no Olympic host country has ever increase sport participation in a significant way. And I think even the Australians didn't manage to do it. So I think there's a level of interest in watching sport that you mm. can do. But if you look at legacy more generally in terms of cultural legacy, social legacy, physical legacy, or I think, you know, I mean, we saw this week Westfield Shopping Centre open. Uh, the Olympic Park is wonderful. Um, you can see that East London is being transformed. You see lots of legacy which is kind of easier to capture almost. And, and I can see a greater long-term effect. I think the sport participation legacy, I, I'd say, is still in the balance to some degree. And I think the test of whether we've got a, an active and, and fitter nation in 2014, 2016 is, is yet to be passed. There was, um, I mean, one part of the, the legacy that is worth commenting on a bit, uh, I don't know if people remember the bid, but the promise was to inspire young people around the world to take up sport. And um, there's a charity that was set up by, um, um, connected to the Olympic movement called International Inspiration, which has raised money from Olympic sponsors, which is um, encouraging kids all over the world in very, very poor environments to take up sport through providing coaches and, and facilities. And that project has reached, I think, over 10 million children. It's, it's uh, provided facilities and coaches for over 10 million children. I think the number may be significantly higher than that, but um, that is ongoing and will be a long-term legacy of London 2012 and was created directly off, from the, off the back of Seb's promise in Singapore. Yeah, I mean, just to, to really um, to amplify what, uh, what Roger said, um, I mean, in terms of London's vision, there were lots of things that I think got us over the line in Singapore, but I think one of the key things really was how can we basically stage the world's largest sporting event at the same time as delivering Europe's largest regeneration project. And I think what you're seeing out in East London um, is essentially urban change that would have taken probably 60 years <coughs> delivered in six. And I think one of the, the strongest sporting legacies that we will be able to leave is essentially equipping London with the <coughs> modern sports facilities that it has is, is basically been without for, for decades. I mean, we've it's hardly, I don't think it has a single indoor 50 meter pool. Uh, it doesn't have a covered velodrome. Um, so, you know, really, I think the Olympics are, are really correcting that imbalance and giving the world-class facilities to, uh, to a world-class capital city um, that, it, that, that had been long overdue. Can, can I add one, one comment on that? When we were selling the sponsorships for the Olympic Games, we used to use the regeneration story as an example of the power of the games to reach people and change their behavior. And we, the analogy we used was, you know, for 60 years, 
people have been talking about regenerating that part of East London, and it was always too difficult because you re it required uh, all the different local councils, the, the mayor's, um, you know, the, the mayoral authority, 11 different government departments, and you could never get them all lined up at, at the same time to all say yes and put the money in. And it's the power of the Olympics that enabled everybody to say yes and to achieve in five or six years what had proved to be impossible. And you compare that to other great projects that people have been talking about. I remember at uh, uh, school studying A-level geography, talking about the regeneration of Battersea Power Station. This was in the mid-1980s. You know, it's still not regenerated. Um, Crossrail may be open in 2020. Uh, it may not, I don't know. But again, we were talking about that when I was at school in, in, in the mid-1980s. And th that part of East London would never have been regenerated without um, the Olympic spirit um, pushing people along. Let's hope uh, Iffy Road doesn't fall into that uh, category as well. Um, Ed, what, what are you seeing as a governing body? What are you seeing on the ground? What are you sensing uh, amongst the... Well, I'm a great believer in sporting success, inspiring. Not the next generation, these generations are quite tightly together, so children only a few years younger than those athletes they're seeing succeeding to give it a go. And I'll give you two examples of that. Firstly, British women's middle distance running is in pretty good shape at the moment. Um, think of Jenny Meadows, think of Hannah England, think of Lisa Dabriskie. Um, why is it we've got much more female success at 800 and 1500 metres than we have men? I would say Kelly Holmes. And in 2004, which is only, what, nine years ago, I've got my maths right, less, um, seven years ago. Um, <laughs> I'm a PPEist, we're no good at numbers, you, you know that. <laughs> we're jacks of all trades. Um, seven years ago, um, those, those athletes were young teenagers watching her win a double gold medal. And I think if we'd had the equivalent of Kelly Holmes, if we'd had a, an Ovette, um, I was always an Ovette, not a co-man. I haven't admitted that to him yet, so you haven't seen him. <laughs> yeah. Every time I meet him, I bite my tongue. But, um, but if we'd had the equivalent of a co or an Ovette in 2004, I bet men's British middle distance running would be in better shape than it is right now. And the other thing I'd say is the, 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 the approach of the Olympics is already showing itself in some pleasantly surprising ways. So three 19-year-old Brits broke British records in field events this year. Women's hammer, Sophie Hitchin. Um, women's pole vault, Holly Bleasdale. Her personal best last year was four meters 37. Um, this year she's vaulted four meters 71, which is a huge improvement and um, has taken her into the top 10 in the world. Um, and we mentioned him earlier, or he was mentioned earlier in the presentation at two o'clock, Victor Okoye, um, in the men's discus. Uh, has broken the British record, age 19, and he's coming up to Oxford. He's postponed it a year to try and compete in the Olympic team next year. Um, if you'd said to me, even when I took this job on five years ago, you'll have three 19-year-old Brits in field events breaking British records a year out from the Olympics, I'd have laughed because one of the first things people bent my ear about was, yeah, where are we in the field events? It's all very embarrassing. You know, we're, yeah, we're short here, we're short there. But they're coming through. And I would say, if you spoke to any of them, they would say the approach of the London Olympics has spurred them into focusing their activities as sports people, but also their lives. A guy postponing his arrival in Oxford for a year because of it. And look at the effects it's having. So, and I think this will roll on. And clearly, if we get our you know, however many medals we might get, but they're you know, in the right events of the right colour, um, and they create those inspirational moments that are shown um, on either Channel 4 or the BBC, it will have an effect which will last for some time. And, you know, I, I've, I've every belief it will happen, and to my mind it starts with that sporting success. And the great thing about having the Olympics in London is we have sporting heritage, we've got a great Team GB, whereas, you know, were the Olympics in, you know, some far-flung part of the world where it was just a show, and they didn't have the athletes to field a team that would then create the domestic inspiration, it wouldn't have the same power, and it will have that power here. Each of you are engaged in some really, really challenging logistical roles, um, or certainly the organisations that you work for are. Um, just, just describe for us how, if, if, if at all, your Oxford careers here have helped in, in the roles that you're, you're fulfilling now. And perhaps maybe how you, you know, the, the career experiences you've had and prepared. I mean, you know, Ed, you're 
you're painting a picture there of a sort of mixture of probably strategic planning and a degree of luck, I guess, that, that, that's emanating from it. But That's how you get into Oxford in the first place. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but perhaps, Paul, you, you, you know, I'll give you maybe you're, you're engaged in the most, um, from a planning point of view, the most logistically difficult. Uh, you know, did, did Oxford prepare you in any way for what you've, what you've faced? Oh, definitely, yeah. I, I spent three years at Oxford messing around playing sport and worked out I could do the same for 30 more years. So I have. Um, no, I, I, I think Oxford gave you, you know, certain disciplines against timelines. You know, you had to turn in an essay or you got kicked out. Um, but... Beyond, beyond that, it gave you a, a, a confidence to get on with a career. Uh, it gave you the, the abilities to, 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 to knuckle down and work hard when you needed to. Um, and following, coming out of Oxford, getting into, into a career, um, I think that you know, really some of the, 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 the disciplines and the involvement in a wide range of sports, a wide range of politics, a wide range of, of interests at university really helped me in terms of, uh, of working my way into the sporting world. And, and Godric, your um, organisation um, is obviously clearly responsible for delivering probably one of the biggest peacetime uh, construction projects and appears to be all on time and with, with well, I won't say a minimum of fuss, but uh, I forgot about the microphone there. <laughs> um, how, how do you think that's come about? Has that, that really been with just incredible project management skills? And um, I think there are several things I'd point to. I mean, firstly... Uh, as a country, we probably don't, you know, we, we, we can be quite hard on ourselves. Um, but we do actually have, in the UK, um, you know, world-class engineering, design, construction expertise, which mm. we export around the world, you know, on an on a annual basis. Um, obviously, the construction industry has perhaps been defined by some high-profile problems with certain projects. But I think with, with proper organisation and, and proper leadership, which I say there's been at a political level and I think at an organisational level, um, <coughs> There's no reason, really, why we shouldn't be set up to succeed. Um, I think allied to that, um, as I say, I think the, the fact that this hasn't become a political issue has been enormously important for us um, as, a, as an organisation. Um, and I think, I think we have actually bucked the trend from, uh, from previous games, actually. And I think we have now a sort of, hopefully, a platform that we can really build on and and we've got a, you know, every chance of staging a brilliant game. So I think there was, I wrote it down here, somebody in Sydney defined the, um, the phases of an Olympics, and obviously Sydney had staged a fantastic game, but actually had quite a rocky, um, rocky road. So I'll just, uh, just read them to you. Um, year one, winning the bid, euphoria. Year two, disenchantment. Year three, search for the guilty. Year four, persecution of the innocent. Year five, successful delivery of the games and completion of the event. Year six, glorification of the uninvolved. Um, so we've, uh, we've bucked the trend so far. We've, we've, uh, we've avoided sort of phases uh, three and four. Um, but I think we are hopefully set fair to stage a fantastic games. And I think, as I say, that's, that should really be a, you know, a, a, a tribute to the success of, of UKPLC, um, which is world class. Of course. Um, just a quick warning for the audience, uh, if anybody's got any questions in a moment, then uh, we'll ask, uh, ask for those. But uh, um, Charlie, Alison, anything you'd, you'd pass comments on about some preparation for, for what you've faced? Uh, um, I think probably my time when I was rowing, uh, I got to know how much the politics of sport affects you as a competitor. And I have been completely astonished working on the Paralympics at how many different bodies there are to negotiate and work with. I mean, I don't think I've ever worked on such a, a kind of big disability-related campaign which, where that was the case, really, and it's been quite a minefield. So uh, particularly with when people have so many strong views on portrayal of disability and disabled athletes... Um, that has taken that takes up much more of my time than the logistics really because um, you know we as a channel have a sort of remit to innovate and to do things differently and you have to kind of balance that with trying to do the best by um, what people expect in terms of um, the Paralympic ideals how the IPC wants to see their athletes portrayed uh, we're trying to introduce a new system of classification to or explaining the classification to um, viewers to help them understand the sports a bit better and to understand why you might have um, a dwarf athlete uh, 
competing against someone who's an amputee, and uh, all that has to be negotiated in my minute detail, and I think um, uh, possibly my time at Oxford prepared me a bit for that, and also made me empathise a lot with the athletes, because I've had that kind of up and down that athletes have when they're injured, and uh, so I find it very easy to relate to them and to, um, you know, to, to be a kind of bridge between them and the programme makers, if you like. Absolutely. I, um, I think one of the things I took away from Oxford um, that was very helpful in the early days, particularly, and actually until, until we got LOCOG up and running, was the fact that when you're here, you are surrounded by extraordinary people who achieve extraordinary things and who do not have set themselves boundaries that... Um, that, are, that are insurmountable. You know, I was inspired by some of the people I met here, by some of the people who I followed here, and some of whom are in this room. And when you're thinking about starting Olympic bids, when everyone said Paris was going to win, and people I knew well came up to me and said, "You're wasting your time. There's no way you can win this." Um, I drew on some of some of those inspirational characters that I'd met when I was here, or had heard about when I was here. Um, even two months before the bid, we were nine to one against winning on the on the Betfair betting exchanges. Actually, Ed. Um, <laughs> nine to one against winning. Paris was five to one on a month before. Um, and sometimes you need to keep some of those inspirational characters in your mind to um, help you keep going at times like that. I was going to say, I think it's also two things. I think Alison's absolutely right. Um, a training about politics is in, enormously useful when you're dealing with the IOC and LOCOG and GOE and DCMS and everybody else. Th that, that's helpful, and Oxford does give you a bit of that. I think the other thing, though, is absolutely about inspiration and excellence, which yeah. is, you know, uh, people like me, I'm sure a lot of people on this panel, I was the first in my family to go to a university, let alone go to Oxford. And that sense about what you get in Oxford about excellence. I mean, the Olympic movement is about extraordinary competitiveness and uh, amazing human beings and people who are genuine in inspiration. And I think that th that thing about not being afraid about excellence, um, you know, in a way we're proud about this university, and I think equally people <coughs> who are proud of the Olympic movement. Because, look, in, in, in our journalism, we are completely independent and fair and free about what we say about London 2012 or about the Olympics. As a movement, though, as an Olympic movement, when it's at its best, it is one of the most powerful organisations in the world for transforming people's lives. And that, that ultimately is what you hope you get out of it. That's what the real legacy is. That is. Um, do we have any questions in the audience? Yeah, that's one. Um, if, you, if you don't mind just announcing your name uh, as you make your question. Uh, my name is uh, Tony Williamson. Um, question I'd like to ask. We, we often see and praise our leading doctors, our leading politicians, our leading sportsmen. What does the people here think about the importance of really good organisation behind them, which usually doesn't get any claps at all? I'll take that. Um, it's to be to work for the governing body of any sport. Um, is to be loathed by many people within the sport. Um, and um, I only have ever worked for one, uh, which is the one I'm leading now, uh, but I am a sports fan. And if I stop and think about it, the number of times I, as a sports fan, reading the newspapers, watching the television, have moaned about the FA, the ECB, even one of my good friends from Worcester um, is a senior person there, the RFU, um, and I've sometimes had to stop and check myself because I've developed this sort of schizophrenic approach to being, on the one hand, the chairman of UK Athletics, and on the other, someone who moans about other governing bodies. It is the default position of um, people in this country. Um, if I look at what the average employee of our very small organisation, and we've got 100 staff, we've got annual revenues of 20 million quid, um, to put out what will be one in eight of Team GB next year. Probably 70 athletes out of the 550 will be track and field athletes. Um, people do an extraordinary job because they absolutely love their sport. And the infrastructure of grassroots sport in the UK <coughs> rests very heavily on the work of a very small, um, not often very well paid, central cadre of um, administrators. And then surrounding them, um, a huge force of volunteers giving of their time um, to make track and field athletics happen. And the same is true, I know, of football, rugby, cricket. 
Uh, and now I've seen it up close, and I've also seen what pressure the average fan brings to bear on the governing body. I can see just how little people understand um, the difficulties, because uh, we're talking here about a £9 billion project, the Olympics, which Charlie's talked about raising £2 billion. And I've just told you we have £20 million of annual income. Most of these governing bodies are relatively small and they're doing a very good job. And without them, um, yeah, if, if we get good British medal success in athletics next year, in some small part, and not that small a part, it will be down to the work of um, some excellent administrators you know, back in the office who for many years have made it happen. So I, I've got lots of admiration for the people I see in, in the infrastructure sport in the UK, even as a, if as a fan. I forget myself sometimes when I'm looking at other sports. Uh, <clears throat> thank you, Ed. Uh, we've got a question on the left from uh, Lord Patton. Chris Patton, um, and I hope this isn't abusing my position. Um, <laughs> Twenty odd years ago, um, I had to go to Tokyo uh, to support, in front of the International Olympics Committee, the bid for the Games to be held in Manchester which was clearly regarded by most of those present as a sort of bizarre example of the British sense of humour. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm obviously delighted that uh, not least, to be fair to him, which I always try to be, not least thanks to A. Blair St. John's, um, we actually made it with the London bit. But I've just got two questions following up things that uh, some of you have said. F first of all, Godric, what do you think has been most important in turning around the traditional British scepticism about our ability to do anything, certainly something like the Olympic Games? I mean, it's only a year or so back that um, Simon Jenkins appeared to speak for um, a cynical nation. Um, but that all seems to have changed recently. Do you think that's permanent? Uh, or what do you think did it? And uh, what do you think the dangers are in the future? And the second thing I wanted to ask, um, after what uh, Ed has said, which almost answers the question. When I was a kid, there was only one British cyclist, Tommy Simpson, who died on Mont Ventoux. Now we seem to win virtually everything at cycling. <laughs> um, you could, with respect, see the story the other way around with track and field. Not quite, but almost. What did cycling get right? And what do you think you can learn from that experience? Who's going first? Go first. I mean, I think on the construction side, having a very, very clear deadline obviously gives you know, a massive focus. Um, and I think what we've done collectively across the project really is use that to drive decision making, but also embrace transparency. Um, I mean, people will know whether we are late or not. Um, we published our, um, our timetable five years ago. We said that we would have the main venues finished by one year to go, and we basically you know, backed ourselves to do that. And then at each stage, um, every year, we published the milestones which people could judge us by. Um, now, fortunately, we've been in the, the happy position of the construction industry and the contractors on the park actually nailing that. And I think the, the ultimate accolade that we had as, as an organisation um, was from a, a Liberal Democrat peer in a debate in the Lords who congratulated the, the ODA on making construction boring. And in many ways, what we've tried to do is almost remove it as an issue. Um, we haven't, we've tried to be, uh, as I say, transparent, open, open about challenges, open about um, some of the difficulties, um, open about the complexity. Uh, and basically try to manage people's expectations as best that we, um, as best we could. But I think the communication uh, has been the easy part, and it really it's been the delivery um, and the fact that you know, our, our, our contractors and, um, and the companies on the <coughs> Olympic Park have, have delivered to programme that has enabled us to, to, to be able to communicate a success story. Can I, can I say, I think the, you know, the venues being a available to see, the park being open and people actually being able to see that the velodrome is a beautiful building, the, the aquatic centre is a beautiful building, the stadium is a beautiful building. Um, and, um, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, it's beautifully track-shaped, that's what I like about it. <laughs> and, and I think the fact that when, now you can get into it, now you can, get, you, know, now you can have visual images of the park through you know, various media. 
people are saying, wow, this is real, it's amazing, the landscaping's beautiful, you know, you can see all the trees, it's, uh, it's become very real. I think a couple of other points I've made. I think Beijing was a really critical moment for the project. I think the, it really reconnected the public with the Olympics. I think our, the success of our team, I think the BBC's coverage out there was absolutely fantastic. I think it just created a completely different environment post-summer uh, post 2008. And in a funny sort of way as well, the, the downturn in the, the economy, I think, made telling the story about construction and, and the ask, answering the question, is it worth it, that much easier. Because obviously at a difficult time for the economy, the fact that the, the Olympic Park was generating you know, jobs in East London, but jobs in the supply chain and in companies up and down the country, I think has again been an important part of the story in terms of moving public opinion. Yeah, I, I, Chris, to, to answer your question, um, cycling has one structural advantage over track and field athletics, which is enormous, and it's the same advantage that rowing, um, sailing, the equestrian has, which is not that many nations can throw the resource at it. They're technical sports, they're expensive sports. Um, and the cycling we're talking about is largely velodrome cycling, and yeah, there aren't velodromes in Kenya and Ethiopia and Jamaica, which is where a lot of our competition is coming from in athletics. So um, no nation will ever dominate athletics in the way that Australia first and now Britain more recently, it's hope again Britain next year, uh, will dominate in the velodrome. But the, the, certainly there are things that we have learned from cycling and all the other British sports have as well. They were there before the rest of us. Um, and they go to two things really. One is um, centralisation of excellence. So again, cycling, there aren't many velodromes in the UK, are there two, I think, um, of, of any quality. Um, but British cycling has all of its athletes in Manchester. And if you're not prepared to go and train in Manchester, you're not on the team. So it's sort of take it or leave it if you want to succeed. Um, what we've done in athletics is we've built or we've worked with different partners to establish two centres of excellence, one at Loughborough University and one's at Lee Valley just outside the Olympic Park. And we encourage our athletes to base themselves there. Now, why do we do that? Because we put our best coaches there, but also best medical support, sports psychology, sports nutritionists, and, 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 and. And that's certainly um, seeing some benefit. Uh, the other is the minute attention to detail which British cycling have brought to their sport, which we work with individual athletes on bringing to their own programme. And we've seen it with Mo Farah this year. Um, he's not out of one of those two centres of excellence. He's gone to an excellent coach in the States. Um, but he's completely changed his training regime. And um, we can go through all the little bits and pieces of how he's changed his training, but one sort of snapshot number is that he's gone from running 80 miles a week to 130. Now, it's not any old 130 miles, it's not junk running, it's very specific to the requirements of his disciplines, but um, he has, through all sorts of conversations he's had with our people, been made to realise just what you have to do if you want to become a world champion, which he has just done. And if you look backwards in previous championships, I think Berlin, he didn't make the final. Um, or was it Beijing didn't make the final. Berlin, he was um, sixth or eighth or something, but he wasn't pushing on top three. And he's made a breakthrough around really close attention to detail. And, and cycling has, has really led the way in that. And um, yeah, all credit to them. And I think they've raised the whole Team GB game across all the sports because, frankly, we've had them as a stick that we've been beaten with over the last few years. You go to meetings with UK Sport, the Lottery Funding Agency, they sit down with all 26 sports. And if I've heard cycling do it this way once, I've heard it a million times. You know, Chinese water torture, eventually it's got through and the, the whole bar has been raised, which is, which is great. And no, I'm, a, I'm, a good, I'm a big fan of, of, of velodrome cycling. It's phenomenally exciting. It's a pity you can't get 80,000 people mm. in a velodrome because you'd sell it. Mm. Yeah, you would have done it. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I was about to say we had time for one more question. Sorry, but, I spoke uh, too much. No, that, that's absolutely fine. But, uh, I hope you don't mind, but Sir Roger Bannister's actually snaffled the, uh, the chance. <laughs> I think he deserves it. Well, I congratulate the panel, and it's interesting to hear that their earlier careers in Oxford became relevant in, in, in relation to sport. This top and bottom link, I think, is very important for the inspiration of young sportsmen in other countries. Um, I remember that when Manuel Santana became the first Spaniard to win a title at Wimbledon, it was said that they were selling tennis rackets in Spain next day like loaves of bread. <laughs> uh, I think that there is that um, aspect which is extremely important. But no member of the panel has mentioned government involvement. 
And um, Ed Warner, I think, um, will perhaps understand this, that in the 1970s, uh, when the Sports Council uh, really became closely involved, and I had the uh, privilege of being, being chairman, uh, the governing bodies were in a state of disorganization. Um, the situation was that they were largely voluntary and they had held posts for a long time and had run coaching courses, but it seemed that they needed a plan. And uh, at that stage, uh, the Sports Council went to each governing body, this applies to cycling too, and said, if you had the money, what would you want to do? And uh, our subtext was um, go for coaching and get skilled professional coaching and bring in an administrator um, like you, Ed Warner, in order to add a professional touch to the sport. And it was this which only started then because the funds were limited, but over successive decades, the amount of money involved from this level of sport has increased enormously. And so I do think the taxpayer uh, does deserve a bit of credit for the <laughs> fact that, that England, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, um, have more than kept pace. And we have the wonderful situation um, in relation to athletics in which uh, Britain is now, in terms of GDP relationship, um, fourth or fifth in the world, Ed, is that right? Yeah, yeah yes. absolutely. So I think that is a, a credit um, which um, I certainly would like to uh, remind myself of. Uh, well, <laughs> so Roger, I think, I think what we, we need is more people like yourself reminding the government after 2012 that they need to sustain that investment. And one of my great fears, talk about what makes you lose sleep at night, is that the, the circus goes to Rio and money coming into sport in the UK gets chipped away for other purposes. And we, we all need to defend that investment. Okay, I'm, uh, I'm going to say one anecdote and then uh, I'm going to just in conclusion ask the panel to um, comment on their sleepless night topic. We already know that Ed doesn't sleep at all. <laughs> um, but my, my, uh, just to show how times have changed actually, the, my favourite uh, story, and I think this is true about, about you Sir Roger, is that uh, in assisting the, the British team in the 1948 games as they're about to uh, enter the stadium to do the um, uh, opening ceremony was that uh, they discovered that they hadn't got the flag and so uh, Sir Roger had to go back out into the car park and uh, smash a window in order to get the flag out of the car to then... That is true? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, so that shows how times have changed. I suspect Locock probably has about, uh, I don't know, 40 people employed just to, uh, to deal with uh, making sure the flag is there. <laughs> okay, okay uh, Roger, uh, what keeps you awake at night, if anything? If we lost the pictures during the 100 metres final, <laughs> that, that, that would be quite a bad moment. Um, Charlie? Um... I, I've left the project now um, in a formal employed sense, so I'm going to be putting my feet up and just enjoying every minute and not worrying about anything. Except <laughs> relegation, of course. <laughs> um, uh, well, apart from the obvious one about commercial breaks falling in the wrong place, um, I would say that uh, the thing that keeps me awake most tonight is what am I going to do tomorrow to make us to push us to innovate a bit more? Because um, I find I hope I hope there aren't any sports production people in the audience, but sports producers I have found are quite conservative, quite traditional, and they like to do things how they like to do things, and um, it's been quite. Uh, an interesting fight to gear them into doing something a bit different and to excite the audience in 2012. Paul? What keeps me awake at night? Beach volleyball. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because... <laughs> because we've sold 400,000 tickets for it 
we don't start building the venue until six weeks before the games <laughs> because of the Diamond Jubilee and all the rest of it on, uh, on Horse Cars Parade. We don't start building the venue, which we've already sold out, until six weeks before the games. That's a challenge for us logistically. And Godric to finish off. I think really it's the, uh, I mean, there isn't really one thing. I think it's just the, the sheer logistical scale of this now. I mean, I think the, um, the construction is hopefully set fair, but I think the, the scale of what this will mean for the country in terms of the organisational complexity of it, um, the transport, the security, um, I mean, I don't think people have, have yet quite clocked just what a big thing this is going to be for the country, both in terms of the opportunity, and I think if there's one thing we really need to do, it's as a nation really sort of squeeze the lemon of this opportunity that we've got in terms of celebrating everything that's great about the country when the eyes of the world are watching. Um, but it's, uh, it's just... The, the move now to the, uh, the delivery of the games and just all that that entails, but I've got every confidence that LOPOG and all the other organisations involved are, are going to stage a fantastic show. Good. Well, just to finish off the theme, if obviously I'd realised that uh, last night I was going to be having to compare this panel, then uh, I would have had a sleepless night as well, but uh, <laughs> hopefully we've got through. Can I, um, just before we uh, just move on to one, one other thing, or two other things, I'd just like to, um, on behalf of you all, thank the panel. Um, it's been, a, it's been great and you really are a credit to this university and I, we really collectively wish you all the best in the next year in terms of uh, uh, delivering a games that will be truly, truly memorable. So uh, thank you very much. And if, um <laughs>
2012 kilometers between now and the beginning of the Olympic Games. And you can do that running, cycling, swimming, horse riding, rowing, canoeing, windsurfing, sailing, any method of locomotion. Um, as I mentioned, this is proving very popular, both at the individual level and also among our corporate partners, of whom we have many, Coca-Cola, Ford, Sony, John Lewis, the Home Office, Cisco, DLA Piper, uh, just to name a few. And there, these corporate partners are really using it as part of their uh, staff engagement. How can they help their staff really get involved with the Olympics? And if anyone would like to talk to me about that afterwards, I can promise you we have a wonderful service for all our corporate partners um, where we do a lot of the, lot of the background, a lot of the uh, promotion, a lot of the organisation administration. And we also tend to put on, for everybody's benefits, um, a number of demonstrations such as the fencing challenge that you saw earlier. Um, if you do sign up for the 2012 Kilometre Challenge, you get a nice... Sorry, we've gone backwards there, excuse me. You get a nice... Uh, yeah, backwards, there we go. Get a nice totaliser where you can keep uh, track of everyone on your team and how they're doing. The second challenge we have is called the Olympic Sports Challenge. This is all about learning and trying and challenging yourself to learn and try new Olympic and Paralympic sports. We have a 5, 10 and 30 sport option. And then I personally am doing all 110 events that anyone can do in the Olympic and Paralympics, any single person can do. So I'm currently traveling around the country trying to get through 110 events prior to the start of the Olympics. Um, now, I mentioned we have a lot of charity partners with the Gold Challenge, but very, very importantly for today, I wanted to stress that one of those charity partners is the university itself. And Andrew and myself, and I know that many of you here, are hopeful that a large number both of students, staff and alumni will take on the Gold Challenge on behalf of Oxford University and raise some much-needed funds for, for Oxford, and specifically for sporting facilities, for coaching and student bursaries, so that we can improve the quality and the quantity of sport here at Oxford. So um, I hope that's inspired you. I very much hope you'll go to the website, goldchallenge.org, and sign up. Um, it's a great chance to be part of the excitement around the Olympics and actually personally contribute to that elusive goal we were talking about earlier called the legacy. Thank you very much.